All righty. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to do something slightly different. Normally, we do verse-by-verse uh, verse teaching throughout the Bible. But uh, over the next three weeks, we're going to have a Christmas series, a series on the need for Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and the birth of Jesus. These will be the three topics that we look at over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so let's pray before we uh, dig into the Word and Ask God to bless this time. Lord, speak to each one of us. Give us soft hearts. May this be a word in due season. Draw us closer to you by your word. Increase our desire for you. May your word change us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning I would like to talk to you guys about our need for Jesus when God created mankind, he created mankind in his image for fellowship with him. The main purpose of God creating us is for fellowship with him. Before sin had ever entered into the world, before there was a fall, Adam and Eve were in communion with God. They had this fellowship with God. There was this relationship with their creator. Actually, Genesis 3.8 tells us that God walked in the midst, of, the midst of the garden, the very place where Adam and Eve dwelt. He walked there in the cool of the day, implying that this was something consistent. This was a normal thing. Man and God fellowship on a regular basis. H.C. LePoe says, the almost casual way in which this is remarked indicates that this did not happen for the first time just then. So mankind enjoyed close, reality-filled fellowship with God on a consistent basis. But something happened. Something interfered. Something came between God and man. Sin. Mankind severed their relationship with God through disobedience to God. Because God specifically told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he told him, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There will be an immediate spiritual death and a gradual physical death, but separation would happen. So Adam knew the consequences. He knew what would happen. He knew what eating from the tree would bring, and yet he used his privilege of choice to disobey God. And the result the fall of mankind. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And in this passage, we're going to see how man fell. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So we'll read the passage first and then go back through it. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they recognized or they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here we see the fall, the fall of mankind 
the first act of sin and the first act of rebellion against God. And in verse 1, it tells us who influenced the fall. It says, now the serpent, no fanfare, no background information, no background explanation, just now the serpent. So here we have the introduction of Satan, either in the form of a serpent or possessing a literal serpent. We're not clear on which one, but the point is he's in the garden right now. When Ezekiel was speaking to Satan, the king of Tyre, he said to him, you were in Eden, the garden of God. The apostle John is speaking about Satan, says in Revelation 12, the great dragon was cast out, notice, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. John also says in Revelation 20, verse 2, says he, talking about an angel, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So here we have Satan in the garden as a serpent or possessing a serpent speaking with Eve. Now, verse 1 not only gives us the influence of the fall, but verse 1 also gives us some insight about Satan. And the first thing we can learn about Satan, according to verse 1, is he's crafty. He's crafty. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So Satan is a crafty being. He's very deceitful. And the word that's used here means cunning, sly, subtle, shrewd. It's the ability to be extremely manipulative and deceptive. That's who Satan is. Extremely cunning or crafty. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, talking about Satan, says, Satan disguises himself even as an angel of light. Jesus says about Satan in John 8, verse 44, says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's how deceptive he is. Extremely crafty. John calls him in Revelation 12, he's the deceiver of the whole world. So Satan is a crafty being. He's cunning. He's subtle. He's shrewd. And he's the most deceptive out of all of God's creatures. Spurgeon says, Satan has more cunning within him than any of the creature the Lord God had made, man included. He's very convincing. His lies are believable. And he knows how to create doubt. He's crafty. The next thing verse 1 tells us about Satan, not only is he crafty, but he's also created. Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had what? Made. All right. So Satan is a created being. All right. A being created by God. Paul tells us in Colossians, it says, for by him, by the Lord, notice, all things were what? Created that are in heaven, that are, are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were what? Created through him and for him. So uh, Satan is a created being. Ezekiel says to Satan in Ezekiel 28, he says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you, notice, on the day you were what? Created. Created, Created by God. 
He's not God's opposite. He's not equal to God. And a lot of times we put him on that level because of the trial being so intense and the temptation being so hard to resist. And for some reason, we think he and God are equal because of what we're going through in life. But the truth is, he's nowhere in comparison to the power of God. And it's important, important for us to remember this because he's a being created by God. Therefore, he's subjected and submissive to the authority and rule of God. Satan doesn't have free reign to do whatever he wants in our lives. He must go to God for approval. Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has what? Asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Satan said to God in Job chapter 1, 9 through 12 says, now does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. And notice verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. What is Satan doing? He's asking for permission. And if you do this, if you allow me to get, get at him, he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, very well then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Here's the authority of God. You have permission, but you have parameters. Go ahead if you think that he's going to walk away from me, but don't you lay a finger on him. Don't take his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan, because he is a created being, he is subjected and submissive to the authority of God. And he cannot do anything without the approval of God. He's created. And for, for us as Christians, this is extremely viable and extremely important for us to know because we, because he's created, we can experience victory over him because the one who's in us has power over him. John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So as Christians, we don't have to live in defeat. We don't have to give in to those temptations. We don't have to uh, fall for the temptation and the um, drawing of the enemy. James says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. The formula for victory, go to God, submit to whatever he's going to tell you to do, Resist the devil, and he will flee. We can experience victory over him because he's created and he's under the authority of God. We just need to submit and surrender to the Lord in order for this to practically work out in our lives. So he's crafty, he's created, and thirdly, he's communicative, meaning Satan communicates. Look at verse 1 again. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He, what's the next word? Said or communicated to the woman that God really said you must not eat from any tree in the garden. So Satan communicates, all right? He's communicative. And right now, there's this communication with Eve as a serpent. Now, the communication was probably audible, all right, though this wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that an animal actually talked, all right. Remember Numbers 22, Balaam's donkey uh, was given a human voice in order to stop Balaam from doing something he shouldn't do. Peter says in his epistle in 2 Peter 2.16, it says, Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey, what, spoke, with a human voice and restrain the prophet's madness. So there are a couple of times in the Bible where animals actually spoke with a human voice. So the question is, 
Do animals speak today? There's a gator speaking to you right now. <laughs> Glory to God. <laughs> but normally, uh, when Satan communicates with us, it's usually through thoughts or passions or impulses or even people. But the point is, he communicates. And it's important that we recognize when he's communicating with us so that we can reject what he's, what he's saying, which makes it all that much more um, of value for us to know God's word because any interaction with Satan is going to be based on lies. But if we don't know what God's word says, we're going to fall for what he's communicating to us. So be in God's word each day. Right? Be familiar with it so that we can discern the voice of the enemy and the voice of the Lord. So he communicates um, with us. So verse 1 gives us this insight uh, into Satan, crafty, created, and communicative. Now, the second part of verse 1 through verse 5, we're going to see the purpose of his communication to Eve, the purpose of his communication. He says at the end of verse 1, did God really say you must not eat? from any tree in the garden, okay? So what Satan is doing right now, the purpose of his communication is to cause doubt, all right? Like, did, are you sure that's what God said? Eat, like, this tree, you can't eat from it? And what he's doing in his communication is he wants Eve to be unsure about God's command, because if he can cause confusion, then he can cause compromise. So right now he's throwing out seeds of doubt so Eve can compromise in her obedience to God's command. And notice how he takes a positive command of God and uses it in a negative way. God said to Adam... Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not. Satan says, you must not eat from any tree. You see how he twisted that? Took something positive and made it negative. It went from Every tree freely eat to must not eat from any tree. Distorting what God said. And that's one of the tactics of the enemy is the twisting and distortion of God's word. He even did it with Jesus in the wilderness. Keep your finger in Genesis 3 and turn uh, quickly with me to Matthew 4. And we're going to see that Satan even twisted Scripture with the Son of God. Matthew 4, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, what, tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, Jesus. Then the tempter, who was Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And here it is, verse 6. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So here we have Satan quoting scripture to the son of God, no doubt, out of context, 
distorted, and yet he's using Scripture in order to get Jesus to sin. I'm going to get to it, but isn't it interesting that Satan, when he approached Eve, he approached her already knowing the command. I find that very interesting that Satan already knew the word when he came to Eve with, uh, with the temptation. Who told him? How did he find out? Very interesting because the word of God is the most important thing in the life of a child of God. And if that is distorted, twisted, or misinterpreted, then Satan can get the child of God to fall. So he knows scripture. He says to Jesus, it is written. He will give a command. Uh, he will command his angel concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that uh, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus, no doubt, full grasp on scripture, was able to recognize distortion of Scripture and use Scripture rightly in order to resist the devil. Same thing for us. We cannot be naive into thinking that Satan will not use Scripture in order to cause us to fall. He will, but it will be out of context and misinterpreted, so we need to know what God's Word says so that we can use God's Word rightly. Because Satan will try to convince us that it's okay to compromise in this area of life, even though it's sinful, because God is gracious. Because God is forgiving. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which are all true, but all out of context. Because Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the next two words? Certainly not. Or in Pastor Carl's version, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> so it's important for us as believers to know what God's word says so that we won't be deceived or misled by the distortion of Scripture by Satan. You go ahead and flip back to Genesis 3. And this is what we see in verse 1. Satan is misquoting God's word in order to cause Eve to be uncertain about what God said by saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve answered him in verses 2 and 3 by saying, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she's not completely accurate in what God said. And actually what she did is she took away and added to God's word. God said they could freely eat of every tree. Eve said we may eat fruit from the trees. She took away. God said they cannot eat fruit from the one tree. Eve said, we can't even touch it. She added two. Now, it's important for us to know that Eve did not receive God's command directly from God. She received it from Adam. Because in Genesis 2, we talked about it earlier, uh, 16, 17, it says the Lord God commanded who? The man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. So God's command was given directly to Adam, and Adam passed it on to Eve. Now we're going to see the importance of communication. <laughs> because it was either Adam that did a poor job of communicating to Eve what God said, or it was either Eve who did a poor job of listening 
to what Adam was saying. They were married, you know. <laughs> but I tend to think that it was Adam that blew it. He was probably in general and vague. It's like, okay, Eve, you see that tree over there? Just stay away from it. Actually, don't even touch it. Um, this, that thing has death on it. Just keep going. What's for dinner? So what we have here is failure to communicate. But whatever the case may be, God's word was taken away from and added to. And this is a huge deal because of what we're dealing with, his word. David says, when talking to the Lord, in Psalm 138, he said, you, Lord, have magnified your word above all your name. And what David is saying is God has such a high view of his word that he has exalted it above his very character. That's how God views his word. So we have to be extremely careful with how we communicate God's word and how we receive God's word. Listen to these sobering passages regarding communicating God's word. Moses, in speaking to the children of Israel on God's behalf, says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. John says in Revelation, for I testify to everyone who who hears these words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God shall take away his part from the book of life. Solomon says in Proverbs 30, every word of God is pure or proves true or flawless. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Moses also says in Deuteronomy 12, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So God's word must not be added to or taken away from. His word doesn't need our editing. It doesn't need our correction. We don't need to do anything to it. It's perfect as it is. We just need to communicate it accurately. Not only should God's word be rightly communicated, but God's word should also be rightly received. We need to check our hearts before we get into this word. And I think it's a good practice in our devotion or even before we come to service that we, like David said, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and just allow the Lord to do a work in us because we don't want anything to hinder what he has to say to us. So how we receive the word is important as well. James says something pretty interesting in His epistle in chapter 1, verse 21, James says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and notice, and what? Receive, but how? With meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So our hearts need to be humble when it comes to receiving God's word. We can't already predetermine that I know this passage. I know the points. I know what's going to be said. I even know the other's cross-references. That's not a humble heart. That's not a teachable heart. That's not a heart that's going to receive what God has to say. So we need to receive with meekness. We need to have a humble heart when it comes to receiving God's word. When Jesus was given the interpretation of the seed which is the word of God, falling on different soils. Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 20, he says, those that were sown on what kind of soil? Good soil are the ones that heard the word and accepted it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60 and 100-fold. 
So not only do we need humble hearts in receiving God's word, but we also need to have soft hearts, all right? Sometimes we can come to God's word upset with God, upset that he hasn't answered a prayer quick enough or he's allowing something to happen in our lives that we're not in agreement with, and we can come to his word hard-hearted and not receive what he's trying to tell us. So we have to make sure by the power of the Holy Spirit to ask the Lord, Lord, soften my heart. Right now, I'm upset. I'm struggling with this situation, but my heart needs to be soft so that the seed can fall on good soil. So humble heart, soft heart, and lastly, our hearts should be eager, okay? We should have eager hearts. Listen to what Luke said of the Bereans in Acts 17. A lot of times we read this and we just think, uh, you know, they're noble because that they examine the Scripture to see if it's true. But listen to what he says prior to them examining the Scripture. He says, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they, what's the next word? Received the message, notice, with great what? Eagerness. And examine the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said is true. So the Bereans... Not only did they examine the scripture, but they were eager to receive what God had to say. They were eager to receive the word of God. They were eager to listen to God's word. And this should be the same for us. We should have this excitement and this anticipation and this eagerness when it comes to God's word because of this word being true and because God speaks through this word, knowing that I'm about to hear something that's true, knowing I'm about to hear something that's uh, coming from a God that's true, and this truth-speaking God is going to speak to me, that should cause an anticipation. That should cause an eagerness because I'm receiving something that's completely true, and I'm receiving it from God. God is going to speak to me. So knowing this about God's word should cause us to be eager for God's word. So how we communicate and how we receive is very important because it was either through poor communication from Adam or poor reception from Eve that caused God's word to be added to and taken away from because Eve said to the serpent, we can eat from the fruit, uh, eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God said, we must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle, and you must not touch it or you will die. And to this, it was almost like that gave like a crack to Satan for him just to sprint through. To this, her reply, Satan replies in verses 4 and 5, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, when you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan is telling Eve the complete opposite of what God said. God said, you will certainly die. If you eat from the tree, Satan said, you will not certainly die if you eat from the tree. And what Satan is doing is trying to convince Eve that God is off in what he's saying. That what he's saying isn't true. Because if he can get her to not believe God's word, then he can get her to disobey God's word. And that's his ultimate purpose, disobedience to God's word. And he'll attack God's character in order to make it happen. Because if we, if he can get us to believe God's character is something other than what's in his word, then he can get us to fall. And this is exactly what he's doing to Eve. First, he attacks God's word in verse 4. And now in verse 5, he's going to attack God's character. 
because he says to Eve, for God knows, meaning this is intentional on God's part. God is intentionally trying to hold something back from you. God knows that when you eat from it, from the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. So Satan is communicating to Eve that God's character is he's selfish, insecure, and controlling. This is the picture that Satan is painting of God. And she believed it. She believed the lie against God's word, and she believed the lie against God's character. Because verses 6 and 7 tells us, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Mankind fell because mankind failed in disobeying God's word. The fall of mankind was through the disobedience of mankind. Both Adam and Eve went against what God commanded. And actually, Eve gave into the temptation just like John, the Apostle John, um, how he described in his epistle. John says, in John, First uh, John two sixteen says, "For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world." So Eve first gave into the lust of the flesh when she saw that the uh, fruit was good for food. Then she gave into the lust of the eye, or the lust of the eyes, when she saw that the fruit is pleasant to the eyes. And then she gave into the pride of life when she perceived that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. So her fall was just like the Apostle John described in his epistle. But I think Eve's disobedience was different than Adam's disobedience. Because Eve was deceived, but Adam rebelled. And the reason why I said uh, reason why I say this is because of what Paul said in, in his letter to Timothy. Paul said, Adam was not deceived. In 1 Timothy 2:14, Paul says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Eve gave in to deceptive temptation from Satan. Even though she could have refused, she could have resisted. Satan didn't physically force that fruit down her throat. So she didn't have to eat. Nevertheless, she did and disobeyed, but her disobedience was through strong deception. But Adam, on the other hand, there was no deception. He knew exactly what he was doing when he ate the fruit. Adam sinned knowingly. Eve was tricked into sinning, but Adam rebelled in his sinning. Therefore, Adam bears the responsibility for the fall of mankind. 
Adam bears the responsibility for introducing the world to sin and death because Paul says in Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through how many? One man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus, that spread to all men because of all sin. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in who? Adam all died. So Adam is responsible for bringing sin and death into the world. And because of his disobedience, because of his conscious rebellion against God, Mankind is morally corrupt and completely depraved. And to help us understand just how bad off we are, just how wicked we are, Paul paints a beautiful picture of this in Romans chapter 3. So um, you can leave Genesis now and turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. And we're going to see the corruption and depravity of man because of the fall. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, Paul is speaking, and he says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? He's talking about advantages as Jews. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who sees God. All have turned away, and they together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silent and the whole world held accountable to God. This is mankind. The fall left man helpless, hopeless, lost, and separated from God. The intimacy they once enjoyed, the close fellowship they once had, that tight communion, the reality-filled relationship with God is no more. Man is without hope. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. God sent us a Savior. God sent us a deliverer. 
God sent us a rescuer to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, which was pay the price for our sins. God did this. God initiated. God went after. God is wooing. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross for all of mankind so that all of mankind can have a relationship with him. God sent us Jesus, his son. And it's through his son that we are restored back to him. It's through Jesus Christ that mankind is saved. Only through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, in talking about Jesus, says, salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Salvation is only through Jesus, God's solution for man's sin. So we need Jesus in order to be saved. Not only do we need Jesus for salvation as unbelievers, but we also need Jesus for sanctification as believers. There is no way we're going to grow as Christians without being completely reliant and dependent on Jesus. That's the only way we're going to grow. We need him for, self, uh, for sanctification. We need him in order to grow. Dependence on Jesus is not only for salvation, it's also for sanctification. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2.6, he says, As you dare have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? So walk in him. All right? The same way we are saved is the same way we should live. We were saved by completely depending on Jesus. Now we should live the same way, completely dependent on Jesus. So mankind is in need of Jesus for salvation, and mankind is in need of Jesus for sanctification. Mankind is always in need of Jesus. We are never in not need of Jesus. I don't know if that makes uh, proper grammar, but you get the point. We always need Jesus. So in closing, if you're here and you don't know that God who sent his son to bring you back into that relationship that Adam and Eve once had, I want to encourage you, after the message, you come up here and see me, Pastor Carl, Pastor Jim, one of the um, elders, and get to know this God who loved you so much while you were at your worst in your depravity, he sent his son so that you can have a relationship with him. Because you will never be fulfilled in life. You will never have purpose in life. You will never have peace continually in life until you give your life over to the Prince of Peace, which is Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who do have a relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage us. Enjoy God. Enjoy him. Enjoy the relationship that Adam and Eve once had in the garden. We were created to enjoy our creator. So enjoy fellowship with him. David tells us in Psalm 37:4, he says, delight yourself in who? In the Lord. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 3:18, he says, I will rejoice, notice, in who? In the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Paul says in Philippians, rejoice in who? In the Lord. Always, again, I say rejoice. So our joy should be found 
in the Lord. We should enjoy God in the relationship we have with him. So how? How do we do this? How do we practically enjoy God in our lives as believers? I'm just going to throw out one way, um, a way that's very helpful to me and hopefully to you. I believe a way we can enjoy God in our relationship with him is by being constantly aware of his presence with us. Because being aware of God's presence in our lives should produce joy for him. David said in Psalm 1611, in your what? Presence, there's fullness of what? Joy. David also said to the Lord in Psalm 21.6, he says, you have made him, David, you have made me exceedingly what? Glad with your presence. Peter said in Acts 2.28, you, talking to God, you, God, will make me full of gladness with what? With your presence. So when we realize that God is currently with us, when we are aware of his presence, this should produce joy in us because God is with me right now. When I leave this sanctuary, God is going to be with me right then. When I go home and eat and watch whatever football game, God is going to be there with me. He's always with us. He never leaves us nor forsake us. So the application is believe his promise of his constant presence. Believe it. Regardless of how we feel, we can't go by feelings. We have to go by truth. And the truth is he promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Believe it. And when we choose to believe that God is with us, this should bring a joy for God. Believing the truth of his presence, regardless of how we feel, should cause us to enjoy God and our relationship with him, the very thing Jesus died for. Let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, help us to enjoy you. I pray for uh, anyone who's in here, Lord, that doesn't know you, just pray that you will open their eyes and that they will see their need for a Savior, for someone who did it all for us so that we can have eternal life. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to live in constant dependence on you, not only at salvation, but even after salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.